if you're breathing through your mouth when you're sleeping, what can happen is because you're, you're through the neurology of sleep, your uh, central nervous system innervates your muscles and your tongue is a major muscle. And so when you're in REM sleep in particular, your tongue can become temporarily paralyzed. It sounds a little weird, but if you're breathing through your mouth and you're laying back, you can envision if your tongue is not getting any sort of tonic nervous system input, it can collapse your airway. And this is very common, way more common than people realize. Like sleep disorder breathing is a spectrum. People, you have normal you know, nasal breathing, then on the other end of the spectrum, you have uh, sleep apnea. Most of us are kind of in the middle where we have these periodic apneic events. One clue of people who have this is they wake up in the middle of the night to go pee. Because when you're having this sort of choking yourself on your own tongue, which is crazy, a lot of people do this, um, it affects vasopressin and the retention of water. It can cause you to go pee. Welcome to the Pretty Intense Podcast. Uh, Today is going to be an education in health and wellness when it comes to working out, supplements, food, fasting, exercise, blood sugar, insulin, all those things. And it is with Mike Mutzel. He has a degree in biology. He has a master's in clinical nutrition, and he's also an author with a couple of books. He is really just a wealth of information. Um, So I mentioned some of those things that we talked about, and all we did was go into depth about them. And so it's fascinating to hear from, you know, a, a scientific perspective, how the body reacts to stress, reacts to fasting, reacts to regular routines and not shaking things up. And then we hit you with a good one at the end with how to lose weight really fast. So I hope that you enjoy this episode. It's one of those note-taking kind of episodes, but be sure to check him out. Mike has tons of information. He's making videos all the time. He has a great YouTube channel. Uh, Also click the subscribe and hit the thumbs up if you like this. Enjoy this episode. I recognize that. I recognize the shot from all of your videos. Yep. This is where it goes down. Yeah. Yeah. Is it an office or is it like, uh, have you just, uh, uh, taken up the living room or something? Yeah, it's an office. Yeah. Um, but my daughter's room is just right next door. So when friends are over, it's, it's oh. kind of chaotic, but we do what we can right with the home office. Oh, totally. I, I, where are you anyway? Yeah. Seattle area. Oh, cool. So cool. Kirkland, Washington specifically. Well, how do you, how do you deal with the lack of sunlight then? It's tough. You have to be very <laughs> intentional about it. Right. Um, So I built a sauna. So we're doing the sauna and try to travel. My mom's in the Bay Area, so I'll go down to California or take an L.A. trip or something like that. But you have to be very intentional about it. Yeah. So I'm curious what your day's been like so far. Like, what have you done? Tell me all of your all of your things that you do. Yeah. Great question. Um, So for me, like morning sunlight is really important. So first thing in the morning before I even get on my phone and check, you know, things out, whether it's internet accounts, stocks, all that sort of stuff, just get outside, get some movement. So I do some breath work and I faced east and I really just try to get, you know, sun in my eyes and get the dogs out for a walk. Then I come back and do a little meditation 10 to 15 minutes after I've done the breath work. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you've dabbled in, into meditation at all, but you know, the, the whole mindfulness meditation community doesn't really acknowledge the importance of breath work. And right you know, that hyperventilation followed by retention, sort of this box breathing where you inhale and then you pause and then you exhale, you hold and then repeat. Um, That can be really helpful to get- What is your exact breathing that you do? Well, so my first set of breaths, this is more like, I learned this from this book uh, about a decade ago, Um, but this is more of just a quick 
to expand the rib cage. So it's mm-hmm. can kind of for people watching. So it's really sort of more aggressive, but you inhale really aggressive and <sighs> like that. And you're using your arms to sort of oh. move your rib cage and, and diaphragm. Wow. So it just helps sort of expand. You breathe going up and then you exhale the arms down. Arms down and try to be sort of as intense as you can. And especially on the exhale, it's much easier for people to take a deep breath. But really, when you exhale, focus on that lower part of that deep part of your lung and just like, ah, like get yeah. it all out and then rapidly inhale again. So I'll do like 15 sets of, I'm sorry, 15 reps yeah. would be one set Then I hold. And then it's, you're pretty, you can be a little lightheaded depending upon how sure. intense you go. I'll do two sets of that. Um, but that's just a great way to sort of prime the lungs, move the body, move your arms. And again, you're facing East, you're getting the sun in your eyes, which is great for your circadian clock system and all that. Yeah. That, that, that's, that's not it though. We're, we're at least at this point in time, it's a, we're afternoon now. So I should, there should be, is what else? There's more. Yeah. Sorry. Is this too slow of the detail? I don't want to mean to No, you're doing great. I'm actually asking for more. Yeah. Okay. So that's your morning. That, so that's the morning and then I'll have coffee after I do all that. So okay. the idea is to sort of get sunlight, get some movement, get some, some air, calm the mind, focus uh, with meditation. And then I'll do a little bit of work. I like to, you know, with creative work, with reading, uh, I was reading an article today from this plus one journal of biology talking about light exposure and this expert consensus was saying, you know what, light should really be viewed as problematic as junk food. Or as problematic as say environmental toxins, because our photoreceptors in our retina are, are transmitting all these external cues about daylight, uh, about light exposure during the day, and also artificial light at night, and that's really augmenting this intricate circadian clock system that we have that mm-hmm. affects hormones, that affects detoxification pathways, mm-hmm. that impacts neurotransmitter synthesis. So, you know, so many of us are focused on the foods that we eat exercise and all that is good, but we really should be as vigilant about minimizing exposure to artificial light in the three hours before bedtime and being more intentional about, like as we film this about one o'clock, great time to get outside and go for a walk. And a lot of us, you know, I see you're in your home, I'm in my home. The, the lux, the intensity of the light in the home is just a fraction of what the sun is offering. And so as humans, we evolve to be out in that, whether it's farming or agriculture or hunting or just being outdoors. Mm-hmm. And we're not getting that. So, so many people, you know, wonder why they can't fall asleep at night and wonder why their hormones are off or they're getting into menopause early or all these things. And it's, it's intimately linked to the circadian clock system. So yeah, that paper was just phenomenal. Yeah. Okay. Well, you touched on it just for a second. You said the word, which is something that I just love so much. And if there's anything bad about it, I'm just going to have to chalk it up. Like I'm willing to do. When I visited Egypt, I was introduced to an expert aromacologist who explained the healing powers of various scents. I returned home with 18 bottles of powerful essences that unlocked specific feelings and had all sorts of healing properties. I became inspired to find a functional way to deliver them in a new consumer lifestyle product. Candles became my medium. Voyant means seer, a reference to the inner eye chakra. One of the key energy points in the body essential to wellness and healing. Voyant is a doorway to openness and imagination, a catalyst in our daily journey. Whether you're connecting with others or enjoying alone time, Voyant strives to beautify the home and the soul to create a haven of peace and joy. 
The candle is delivered with a beautiful monogram 12-ounce stemless wine glass, which can be used after the wax is gone. My limited edition candle collection is available exclusively at voyedbydanica.com. Really about anything, except for in this one specific area, to be more healthy, to have more longevity, to optimize my hormones, optimize um, energy. Um, But when it comes to coffee, I got to have coffee. Um, I went without coffee last year for about two and a half months. I just stopped and I had no problem. I didn't have a single headache from it. I wasn't less energetic. I just love coffee. And so tell me the, the good and the bad and what is sort of like the optimal way to consume it. And I'm sure I'm going to have more questions about it, but let's just start there. Yeah. You know, I, I don't think coffee is as bad as some people present it to be. Um, the coffee that I, I think it's really the timing of the coffee consumption. So for example, um, we're recording this at, at one o'clock Pacific standard time. I would definitely not advise you have coffee after this point in the day. Um, now if you're going to go do a hard workout, if you're like, okay, Oh my gosh, I haven't seen my girlfriends in like three months. We're going to go out tonight, find a little caffeine, but caffeine really is problematic for, um, helping you fall asleep. It, it, it you know, disturbs, um, all the adenosine metabolism in the brain. So it's going to uh, augment sleep. And so that's not good. But I'm a fan, especially, you know, we were talking before we started recording about maybe a wedding's coming up, losing a little weight. You know, a lot of people have, you know, these want to get in shape for summer. Using caffeine before you exercise has been shown to prevent the catabolism or the breakdown of muscle, which is a good thing and enhance the oxidation of fat. So uh, in the morning, I'm a big fan of that. And that's, I do a double espresso and when, when choosing the beans, I'm a bigger fan of an organic light roast. Mm. Uh, and there's a few different reasons for that, but, um, that's what I preferentially choose. Um, I periodically will have just say USP caffeine in, in the form of like a pre-workout, but I try to use that sparingly. It, that's sort of like, oh my gosh, you know, I'm, I'm doing something extra intense today or something's going on where I need a little bit. I, I really advise people not be dependent upon pre-workouts and sure. straight up caffeine and use use coffee um, as a little, a little tool. But where people get into problems with coffee is they have the coffee, then they have the, the stevia packets or they have Splenda or they have a bunch of sugar um, and it becomes basically a four or five, 600 calorie energy bomb, which that can add up, you know, you add in three meals there, plus some wine, plus some beer, you're looking at three to 4,000 calories. And unless you're really active, you're probably going to gain some weight. So those are my thoughts on coffee. Well, I drink it black, total purist. Um, so you talked about the timing and this is cause I've read a lot and watched a lot of videos about coffee and timing and sunlight and you know, uh, that there, that your body, um, has sort of the natural energy from waking up. And is that cortisol that produces that and kind of gives you a burst and that it really, you should wait at least an hour, perhaps after you wake up to drink it. Me, I, I wake up, I force myself to drink a glass of water and I actually put right now, I put, um, some aloe vera water, aloe vera in it. And then, um, I put a little bit of lemon juice and some apple cider vinegar, just, just a little bit. And so I force myself, I drink that or just regular water, but then I'm ready for coffee. Yeah. And that might only be like 30, 40 minutes after I wake up, maybe. You know, 
I think that's fine. I know a lot of people do split hairs on having to wait mm-hmm. this amount of time and this. You know, some days that's not practical. I mean, if you're going off to travel or you're doing something. Um, but if it makes my, my my thing is like if it makes you feel good and it's you know, there's not a lot of downside. So you're like, okay, if you only wait 45 minutes, what's the worst that's going to happen? Your, your cortisol awakening in response, which is theoretically why people are saying delay the onset of coffee, should already be kicking in even before you wake up. That should be mm-hmm. sort of waking, wake, awakening you. So I don't worry about that. There's other things that I worry about. I would, you know, and if we're too regimented, this is another thing. If, we're, we're too, if we exert too much willpower, oh, I'm only going to consume this much coffee. I'm going to meditate. I got to exercise. I can't have sugar. I can't do this. Then by the time it's 10 o'clock, you're like, oh my gosh, forget it. I, I need that glass of wine or I need some ice cream. So we need to be mindful about how much willpower we're, and how much restraint we're sort of inserting into our day. Um, and so I think you know, having low coffee, not a big deal if it's within a half an hour, 40 minutes of awakening. Sure, sure. Um, I, this is a, a little bit of a side question to the coffee, but sort of in, in light of getting sunlight in the morning, I have a big, you know, juve, like six panel red light. And, um, in the heart of Napa Valley lays Somnium, which means to dream in Latin. The Somnium Vineyard Estate is an extension of the love and intensity that I pour into everything I do. To experience our wines, visit SomniumWine.com and use the code SOMNIUM to receive a $10 flat shipping rate. Please drink responsibly. And I I think I kind of know the answer, but I'm curious from a scientific standpoint. Sometimes I think to myself, oh man, especially right now in Arizona, it's like sunny at 5 (laughs) a.m. It's getting sunny. And I know that because that's when I wake up because I wake up with the light. And I think well, should I do the red light? Cause normally my routine would be to get up, have that water, a little bit of coffee, red light, stretch, a little bit of yoga during that dry brush, cold shower, get some clothes on, go walk the dogs. That's kind of my normal routine, but I'm like, man, I probably should just skip the red light and just get outside. Like it's, it's like, is that accurate? Or is there some benefit with red light specifically, is there more um, density of those wavelengths that it's giving you that helps with the mitochondria and other kinds of things that it's meant to improve? Or should you just get outside? It's a great question. I think this time of year, you should just get outside. Um, Especially for you, it's starting to get warmer and warmer, and then you may not be outside in the middle part of the day. So I think that's more important. Um, there are definitely some mitochondrial benefits with regards to, and I, I we too have the six panel juve and it's yeah. an awesome right. setup, right? Um, but I, I consider that more therapeutic in the winter time specifically. You mentioned how in the heck do you survive in Seattle? Like yeah. that is because sometimes it doesn't get light out until eight 30, you know, um, like, and that's really tough. So that's where I think the juve comes in and also it can help with an injury. Let's say, for example, you're like, well, I have a bicep injury or, you know, was training, had some challenges. Um, I know you recently got into a, 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 an accident, right? There was a spinning situation going on. So maybe that could help with the recovery. Then you go outside. But but I think if you're going to, you know, I would definitely prefer the sun over the juve as much as I love the juve. I have a lot of questions about fasting, but first I want to start off with just being a fat burner versus a sugar burner. And I get that, 
you know, once you become more metabolically flexible, you should be able to kind of tap into either. And then perhaps you're not as hungry as often because your body is adapted and it can shift sort of um, energy mechanisms. But how the hell do you know if you're burning fat or sugar? Cause I get hungry and I try, I mean, I try at minimum of 12 hours. Um, and then sometimes, you know, a little bit more depending on the situation or the, um, the time of the month. But, um, but what, how do we know when we're burning fat versus sugar? The really practical way to do this is actually to test and you can get a glucometer. And okay. I encourage all my clients to do this is just go down to Walgreens or Rite Aid oh. or your closest drugstore. People think, oh, a glucose meter, that's only for diabetics. No, this is for everyone. We need to know how our body is processing the foods that we eat, and we need to know how our lifestyle is impacting the post-meal processing. So um, you mentioned, like, even if you eat a low-carb diet, uh, for example, but most people in the post-meal window, their blood sugar is going to go up. So you're naturally going to sort of oxidize or burn more glucose in the post-meal window. But most Americans, unfortunately, stay in that state because not only are, are they eating foods that dramatically increase the glucose, but they're snacking every two to three hours or more. And so the glucose is, they're always sort of oxidizing or burning glucose and never get to the point to where maybe your eye would be in because we exercise and because we compress that feeding window, aka we fast. We get to the point where the glucose goes down and the body needs energy and it starts to dip into the fat stores. And we can talk about hormonally why that happens. But to specifically, again, address the question, how do you know? You would get a glucose meter. You would start to test your glucose. And about, you could do like 30 minutes after. It's just a little finger prick, 29 gauge. It stings a little bit, but it's no big deal. So you could test your glucose, again, 30 minutes after a meal, 60 minutes after the meal, and 90 minutes. And you should see that glucose starting to come down. And that would indicate that as glucose comes down, then you're start, you're, you should start to oxidize fats for fuel uh, in the okay. post-meal window. Oh, well, I wore a continuous blood glucose monitor last year for a few weeks. And I mean, I recommend it to anyone because it's such good information. Not only do you... Um, yeah. I mean, you realize that that little bit of snacking, it can be a bite or two of something and you're like, oh my gosh, I've just ruined my flatline, beautiful, no blood sugar spike situation I have going on. But also, of course, learning about what foods um, your body uh, does well with blood sugar wise and which ones you don't like, for instance, just as an example, I do terrible with sweet potatoes and oats. They were like through the moon. Um, but then I did fine with, uh, popcorn, uh, like corn tortilla chips. I tried rice, not too bad. Um, so anyway, it was very good information, but so it's that simple. So you're saying that as soon as the blood sugar comes down, that it's at its normal amount, which would be, I don't know, 70 or something like that ish. Yeah, well, it's probably a little different for everybody, but that indicates that you're in in a fat burning mode that you're you, that you would be oxidizing more fats for fuel as a proportion okay. because you need to either. So the brain is either going to be oxidizing glucose or fats or ketones. And so when glucose is low, that's going to approximate or suggest that your body is basically in a in a metabolic state such that fat is being broken down and is being directly utilized in the form of free fatty acids, mm -hmm. or your brain is utilizing ketones that are also a uh, formed as a consequence of fat oxidation. So another thing that you can do, look at is breath acetone. Mm -hmm. 
So there's a, a meter called the BioSense meter, and I, I, I like this because um, it, it's a it's a way to sort of your body off gases acetone when you're in a state of ketosis. And when you're in a state of ketosis, the sort of prerequisite for that is low glucose, low insulin. So again, insulin is a hormone that takes glucose out of the bloodstream and puts it into either your fat tissue or your muscle. So uh, when those two situations are low, and then another hormone that is also released from the pancreas, i.e. like insulin as well, called glucagon. Glucagon actually helps burn fat as well. So low glucose, low insulin, high glucagon, the hormonal sort of signature that's going to help you burn fat. Uh, and anyway, when that is happening, your your breath acetone starts to increase. So that's another way that people can, it's a, it's an at-home thing, very easy to do. I think it's 189 some odd dollars. You blow into it and it will oh. tell you where your levels are. So that's that's another tool. And, and that's where I think it's helpful. Like you mentioned, the continuous glucose monitor, phenomenal. I have a few questions for you on that. Uh, but but the uh, breath acetone is cool because it. some people are like, well, I've heard that this guru says I should fast for 20 hours a day. No, I should fast for 12 hours. And then you can sort of bio-individualize, you know, your own fasting protocol. Mm-hmm. You know, not everyone is going to benefit or, you know, if you're really physically active and you're training a lot, do you really need to fast for 22 hours out of a 24-hour day? No, like you're probably okay doing a 12 to 14-hour time-restricted feeding window. But if you're morbidly obese, you don't exercise, you've been living off processed, you know, junk food. Yeah, maybe a one meal a day for you or a an 18-hour fast could accelerate your sort of metabolic healing processes. So um, again, that's where these tools can come in. And they're just, they're just one piece of the puzzle that can help us triangulate and better understand. Um, but, but I think it's also helpful, not just, and my question for you, this is not just about nutrition, but also the lifestyle factor. So for me, Danica, I found when I wore the continuous glucose monitor, I hate waiting in lines, especially like TSA lines. And I, I was in a Canadian airport and I'm normally TSA pre and flight clear. So yeah. I'm, I'm not used to like waiting 90 minutes in line, you know, for the x-ray. And I was about to miss my flight and my glucose went from 70 fasted right. up to 170. So I was wondering you mentioned, you know, sweet potatoes and things like that and oats were problematic, but ha- did you notice sleep or stress uh, impacted your glucose? Yep. At one point in time, I was having a heated conversation and I looked at it and I was like, holy shit, my blood sugar spiked because I was heated. Also with exercise that also sp- spiked my blood sugar. Um, so I'm kind of curious about that. I'm actually, what I want to start get into is a little bit of sort of like the stresses of the body versus with, with all the kind of with, with not with fasting, with exercise and those kinds of things. But I totally noticed that the times where I was consuming no food at all, um, that I had stress or I was working out and exercising more with more intensity would definitely spike my blood sugar. Okay. So I think those situations are helpful to unpack for people because they assume high blood sugar bad, but we know with exercise, um, you know, the hormones, the adrenaline, the noradrenaline that help us actually have a good workout and also help us burn fat, mm-hmm. uh, those increase glucose. And so we need to understand that if you were exercising, if you're running a, an ultra, you know, you're running a hundred miles in a day, mm. every single day, mm-hmm. that much, that high glucose from exercise would be considered problematic. But because we're exercising for say 30 or 40 minutes a day, mm-hmm. we're having a transient increase and then it, it really drops down. Yeah. And part of that increase in, in uh, glucose is because you're liberating stored glucose known as glycogen. 
And once you deplete that glycogen, that's a really powerful signal to actually start to oxidize and burn more fat in the post-exercise window. So for folks listening, don't be scared of exercise-induced increases in glucose. Not problematic, right? It's totally different from food-induced increases in glucose. Like having a Slurpee, having the (laughs) glucose flux from a Slurpee is not the same as having glucose fluxes from exercise. So when we deplete that glycogen, when we burn through that blood sugar from our workout, our body thinks, oh my gosh, we have to reprioritize resynthesizing that muscle glycogen. So while we're doing that, we're actually going to pivot into a fat burning state. And this is why short duration, high intensity interval training, although it doesn't directly oxidize or burn fat during the workout session Mm. in the post-exercise window, it just a short duration, 20, 30 minutes of HIIT training, increases fatty acid oxidation for up to 36 hours, depending upon how intense it is. In contrast, that same sort of duration of exercise doing continuous cardio, it burns significantly more fat during the actual exercise session, but that's it. There's not a lot of post-exercise fat oxidation. So really important that we're not scared of intense exercise because it does increase glucose. Mm -hmm. Now, that's the exercise element, but the stress aspect, really important because you mentioned you had a heated conversation, glucose went up. Well, for some people, they're having those heated conversations or having that physiologic stress exactly. all the time. Maybe they're in customer service. Maybe sure. they drive a taxi in New York City. Uh, maybe they're in a terrible relationship or marriage. And so it's like sure. going home is stressful, right? So there's this difference between acute stress from, say, exercise or what have you, and this chronic psychological stress that manifests mm. physiologically. That is really problematic. And not health, not not health promoting whatsoever. Because when your glucose is doing this all day, that's going to trigger you to then reach for the candy bar, or the ice cream, or binge watch Netflix or whatever. And that's where, uh, you know, sort of the non nutritional factors, i.e., stress, perceived stress, and all that, can can cause your diet to go awry. And so it's really important that we're aware of this. And again, that's why testing can be helpful. Especially notice that, of course, after you eat, if you just, if I just went for a walk for 10 minutes, it would totally blunt the blood sugar response. You don't have to do much. I could even just like do dishes and vacuum or something like I, I just have to get up and move and walk and take steps. And, and it was amazing how it would reduce it. But, um, but as far as exercise goes, um, walking would, would definitely like reduce blood sugar, no matter what it would stabilize it. It just, there was so many positive things about walking and the fact that you can do as much of it as you want humanly really. Um, and I was very curious about that. So if we plug that into the morning now, and I'm going to kind of feed maybe some stressors in that I have questions about, but such as this morning, I was like, you know, I'm going to go for a walk and then I'm going to come back. And it was actually, cause I had listened to something you said, you like do your walk and your little bit of movement in the morning and then lift in the afternoon. And so I was like, I'll just walk. And then I came back and had breakfast and I did a couple little things. And then I did a little just interval session of like 30 minutes of just 10 different moves over and over again. And, um, and, and that, that felt really good. I've always actually felt really good to eat before I work out. Um, so is it better in the morning to, uh, to, cause I know there's also some science behind lifting and exercise before you eat and it can perhaps boost your fat burning, um, 
uh, pathways to um, to tap into that fat storage while you're still in a fasted state. So, and I know nothing is black and white, but you know, from your perspective, what's the what's the what's the science behind all that, and what's the right thing to do? Yeah, th- this is a great question. You know, the research is a little mixed on this. Um, you know, bodybuilders. Let's just if we look at what what actual real people do, because the science is a little mixed. What physically fit people do when they're training for a competition to get as lean as possible, they generally do fasted cardio um, in the morning to accelerate fat loss. But the research is a little mixed on that. What what I suggest when you say cardio, just be clear, like walking, running. They're doing intervals. steady state. Yeah, the fit the bodybuilding community is all about sort of steady state cardio, forty five minutes of running or walking. Usually walking on a treadmill or doing a stair stepper. Um, there might be some incremental added fat loss from that. But I generally recommend if people are honest with their own metabolic health, if they're morbidly obese or overweight, have a lot of weight to lose, the argument to do fasted exercise is more favorable. But someone like yourself already physically fit, you're probably trying to just maintain the muscle you have, gain some strength, you know, you don't need to lose 100 pounds. I think it's great to actually have a meal beforehand, just a small amount of food, because you will have a better workout. And so that's where as long as you're putting that intensity in, I will, uh, having, you know, the the incremental increase in fat oxidation, uh, I think is not worth the loss of intensity that you can have through that exercise if you are having a, a little bit of food beforehand. So that's what I suggest with that. The other thing too, is if we dig too much of an energetic hole when we're working out, let's say we're fasted, then we crush a workout and we're like, yeah, we can have, and women are actually more susceptible to this than men a post-exercise sort of binge. So if we say we burn 600 calories or 900 calories during that exercise session, maybe we do CrossFit, we do intervals, we have our friends there, we have caffeine, we're super pumped up. Afterwards, we can feel like we deserve more calories than we actually burned and it can sort of work against us. So I think this is where the individual needs to come. You know, if you're prone to overeating in general, then don't work out fasted because it's probably gonna cause you to overeat in the post-exercise window. And if you're already used to training and you know what you're doing and you're, you know, you have a routine, then have a little food beforehand. You're probably going to have a better workout. But if you're a novice, you're kind of going anyway, you're not really working out that intensely, totally fine doing that fasted. And then you could eat afterwards. Um, So different options for different folks. Okay. What about the effects of the stress of fasting, the stress of exercise, on the body in particular, perhaps the adrenal, adrenal support in the body. Um, I really grapple with that because I, in the past year, I've done a lot of testing and I know that my cortisol was spiking in the middle of the night based on the Dutch test, um, which is a test where you pee on a piece of paper, like four to five times a day. And since I go to the bathroom in the middle of the night, I got the middle of the night one, which made it five. And my cortisol was spiking then and actually tapering from there and never rising when I got up. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, it would indicate adrenal fatigue to some, I would I, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I really wonder, you know, for, for people who maybe have had a stressful life or been through stressful things, whether it's um, work or relationships or, um, or, or perhaps even just like a bunch of hard workouts or something like that. What's, you know, where, what's the sweet spot and is it better to take care of yourself and go for the walk 
or is it is it still better to use the fat burning potential of um, exercising and fasting? Because that's the other thing is just the amount of fasting um, is another stressor on the body. So where's the happy medium with all that? I don't, I don't have the answer for everyone, but we do know, of course, that, that, that we need to look, have a realistic evaluation at our stress life load bucket, you know? And so if we're doing super intense, short duration, high intensity interval, a lot of volume in particular Mm -hmm. paired with under eating paired with life load Mm -hmm. problematic. And so I think we can, well, I know we can dig ourselves into a hole. I've done it before. And so if we start to stand up too quickly, we get lightheaded, we get dizzy. Um, Those are signs and symptoms that something you're starting to feel burnt out, right? You're waking up lethargic, um, all those things. But, but I will say, you know, fasting, it, it does increase cortisol and noradrenaline, but so does eating food. Like there's a lot, so does waking up in the morning. So there are other things that increase that. So I think because, you know, we, we know that fasting does increase these sort of what are called counter regulatory hormones, cortisol, adrenaline, noradrenaline. It doesn't mean that it's always bad. And in some contexts, fasting can actually increase uh, heart rate variability, which is a sign of your sort of parasympathetic branch yeah. of your autonomic nervous system. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's, there's a lot to this. And this is why, uh, you know, if we sort of just pause and sit, take a small little sidestep to talk about the whole circadian clock system and circadian yeah. rhythms, anyone who has adrenal fatigue or a sort of blunted cortisol awakening response that you discovered through the Dutch test, mm-hmm. this is where we need to be extra mindful about artificial light exposure at night and how much daylight we're getting and being so intentional. Uh, anyone with adrenal fatigue should be taking their eating lunch outside, should be mm-hmm. really on it with that morning walk. And and literally like in the three hours before bedtime, no electronics or very low intensity electronics and not a lot of halogen or LED fluorescent lights in their in, in screens and so forth, because that is way worse for the adrenals in the circadian clock wow. system than a little exercise. So even television at night, this is the thing The TV is so it's really the intensity and how close it's it like is. Your to phone you. so, is here, right? So intense. He's out here. So, but it's also much bigger. So is it mean every technical device or, and are you okay with the glasses? Like I have some, you know, uh, blue light glasses. Um, Mm -hmm. does that do it? Will that fix it? Or is it just really purely, especially if you're dealing with this fatigue, just got to read a book or something. Yeah. Or or do it earlier. Like, like maybe you watch your television earlier, then you can go for a walk or something. Um, within the 90 minutes before bed, I would say no TV, especially if you're dealing with adrenal issues and trying to correct things. Um, perimenopausal, postmenopausal women, really important. Um, because that change, that transition, um, the, the estrogen influences the circadian clock system. And so there's a, a loss of rhythmicity. Mm-hmm. So that's why you see women sort of waking up sometimes at three in the morning or what have you. Just to go um, pee though, just to go to the bathroom. I go right back yeah, yeah. to sleep. Is that, is that, but that is, is that an indicator? No, no. So, but Great. when you get up to go to the bathroom, you mm-hmm. would definitely want to use, I don't, gosh, it's in my bedroom, so I don't have it right here, but a little headlamp. So you're not turning on all the lights. Sure. Yeah. I know I walk, I, I, I have basically my, um, rail. 
Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and um, my sort of muscle memory for the steps is pretty good. <laughs> there you go. That's good. Yeah. yeah. So when you start turning on all the lights, then your brain is saying in your eyes, the photoreceptors are like, oh yeah, it's, we should get up now. And then people can't fall asleep. Yeah. Um, I actually so, yeah. can't sleep if I don't go to the bathroom. It took me a while to learn that. But if I was kind of restless, I real in the middle of the night when it was still dark, I and I even if I didn't feel it strongly, I would f- sort of not be able to get back to sleep. And as soon as I just went to the bathroom, I would go right right back to sleep. So I actually it actually helps me go back to sleep. That's good. But I drink so, too much water, especially at night. I know that's the problem, right? At drinking water earlier. So another small sidestep because you brought it up. Do you have you heard of mouth taping and nose breathing and mouth breathing? I have. I haven't read the book Breathe, but isn't that kind of sort of what they talk about? And there's actually specific mouth tape. Yeah. Yeah. So the mouth tape. So if you're breathing through your mouth when you're sleeping, what can happen is because you're you're through the neurology of sleep your uh, central nervous system innervates your muscles and your tongue is a major muscle. And so when you're in REM sleep in particular, your tongue can become temporarily paralyzed. It sounds a little weird, but if you're breathing through your mouth and you're laying back, you can envision if your tongue is not getting any sort of tonic nervous system input, it can collapse your airway. And this is very common, way more common than people realize. Like sleep disorder breathing is a spectrum. People, you have normal you know, nasal breathing, then you on the other end of the spectrum, you have uh, sleep apnea. Most of us are kind of in the middle where we have these periodic apneic events uh, and it's called sleep disorder breathing. So one, of, uh, one clue of people who have this is they wake up in the middle of the night to go pee because when you're having this sort of temporarily Paralyzed, you know, choking yourself on your own tongue, which is crazy. A lot of people do this. Um, it affects vasopressin and the retention of water. And so wow. it can cause you to go pee. So that's a symptom. I'm not saying Get the your mouth tape breather, out. I'm not, the, the specific tape is called three, the company 3M, 3M, the 3M Micropore tape. Okay. I encourage people to just experiment with this. It can be a game changer for sleep. And you mentioned the cortisol awakening response. Sure. So what you, what I encourage my clients to do is before putting it on before bed, you can maybe take it out in the evening, put some tape on when you're reading a book or doing something else and get comfortable breathing through your nose and so mm-hmm, on. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, that's how we should be breathing when we're sleeping is, is through our nose and the tape can just help facilitate that. Got it. I, um, I'm friends with, um, Gab, Gabby, um, and Laird, uh, cool. Laird Hamilton and Gabby Reese. And she would sometimes, uh, have us because she would lead some workouts and, um, she would say, okay, go on the row or row 5,000, but breathe out of your nose only. And I was like, oh man, it's crazy what, how much different it is to breathe just through your nose. Um, especially when you're doing activity, but that's a great tip for at night. What are some things that people can do? Cause I mean, I wonder about this for myself. How do we know if we're in adrenal fatigue? How do we know if we're, uh, our cortisol is, Cause I was here too. There's also the other side of it where your cortisol is through the roof. And so what are, what are your recommended tests to see if people, if, cause if somebody's suspicious of where they're at, um, biologically, cause we also all think, oh, we're fine, but even a heated conversation raises your blood sugar. So what do you recommend for people? Yeah. Well, the test that you recommended, the Dutch test, I, I do quite like that because it does look at the sort of the, the rhythmicity of your hormones mm. and the metabolites throughout the day. So mm-hmm. you'll see the cortisol awakening response, the time, mm-hmm. then you also can look at DHEA and that's something that we can take a deeper dive into. But, mm-hmm. um, but 
So that's like an objective way to sort of quantify, hey, how are my adrenal glands doing? If people just want to ask themselves, you know, sort of subjectively, you know, the big things are how do you feel when you wake up in the morning, Mm -hmm. i.e. are you ready to go hit the day? Are you excited? Do you have energy? Or are you like, oh my gosh, I can barely get out of bed. Mm -hmm. I'm exhausted. I'm tanked. Um, I'm lethargic. I'm like have no energy to work out. I get dizzy when I stand up. Um, Very sensitive to sunlight. That's another thing as well. Mm -hmm. Um, And then also if your rhythm's all sort of messed up, then some people can be sort of tired but wired when they should be ready to go to bed. So some people, their adrenals start to really kick in because of circadian clock disruption later in the day. And so your cortisol should be at its lowest point around bedtime. Mm-hmm. Um, but for some people, it's starting to get high. And that's why they're like, dude, I, I'm like, I have so much energy now. That's so I'm going to binge watch Netflix and this and then fall asleep at four in the morning. Mm-hmm. And it just creates this really not so good cycle. So, mm-hmm. you know, there's some sort of controversy in in the whole health community really, what is adrenal fatigue? Is it just circadian rhythm disruption? Because again, you should have a strong cortisol awakening response, but so many people now are exposed to artificial light. We have the LEDs in, in compact fluorescence, we have televisions, we have screens. And so that could that's enough light to pivot the entire circadian clock system to trigger your adrenals to start making cortisol when it really should not be. So there's that element of it. But then there's also the life load aspect, the psychological stressors and all that. So what do we do about it? I'm a big fan of DHEA. So this is a hormone that a lot of people aren't really familiar with, but it's a mother Mm -hmm. hormone that feeds into estrogen and testosterone. And the adrenal glands, we've all heard of andropause and we see all these HRT clinics everywhere. Hormone replacement therapy clinics, it's on the radio. And so we've heard of menopause, which is where women stop making reproductive hormones and so forth. But we have adrenopause. Your adrenals naturally, in some people, can go through a state of sort of, uh, can take a little hiatus. And so that, one of the hormones that really can decline as you age is called DHEA. And you can test for this. Again, the the Dutch test looks at it. But if you just get blood work from your primary care doctor or functional medicine doctor, DHEA sulfate is what you'd look for. Um, I'm seeing this, uh, people that I work with in their 20s, it's very low. Hmm. And so when DHEA is low, then their testosterone is going to be low. Then their estrogens are going to be low. Mm-hmm. And this can be very problematic. So, um, yeah, I, I, honestly, I think it's a combination. The circadian rhythm disruptions, the psychological stressors and all that. But in your case, because, and I don't know how recent the Dutch test was, and I would want to look at your other hormones, but I might suggest considering taking like five milligrams or maybe 10 milligrams of DHEA around 8 p.m. at night. Do you take DHA? I do, yeah. Yeah, part of the testing, my testosterone was low, DHA low, um, estrogen, all my hormones were low. We can get into that, but it's not necessarily super important. Um, But uh, but yeah, all my hormones were low. And so the DHA was to, uh, with the functional doctor I was working with at the time, was to help with um, boosting testosterone, so, yeah, I mean, I take 10 now. I took five milligrams for a while. I take 10 milligrams right now. Okay. And, do you and do I it take in it in the, the morning. Well, so here's the thing. It, and maybe I'm guilty of recommending. I used to recommend DHA in the morning, mm-hmm. but it can be used, especially for people like yourself, who the pattern is a little off. Mm-hmm. It might help push because DHA can sort of antagonize cortisol a little bit. Okay. And again, there's not huge studies showing this, but it's just a small handful of studies. So it makes sense to try it. Of those, though, and it makes a difference. 
Yeah. So if you can, and if that cortisol is maybe waking you up or causing light sleep, that could be helpful. So try to take that 10 milligrams, like with your evening supplements, maybe an hour before bed. Oh, that's a good idea. Yeah. I, I sleep. Um, I don't know if you've come across anybody like this, but I wake up awake every day. Like I never wake up tired. I wake up nice. super alert, ready to go. I don't even need coffee. I just love it. Um, and I'm tired at night and I'm hungry in the morning and I'm not hungry at night. Um, but I don't, I also don't need a lot of sleep. Like I have had patches of my life where I'm like, okay, I know like five hours is not really enough, but that's like all I'm sleeping right now. And I'm fine. I feel fine. But I know from a health perspective that this is detrimental. Um, so is there any person in the world that can survive on six? I mean, I get right now, cause I'm, I try and get as much sleep as possible. I mean, I rarely get eight, but seven's kind of the number for me. Um, six and a half is fine. Seven and a half is great. Um, is there anyone that can get away with low sleep and, or is sleep always necessary for the circadian rhythm and for your hormones to do what it needs to do through the night? And honestly, I think it depends on who you ask. I would say if think about, have an honest evaluation of your energy and how you feel in the morning. And if you're waking up without an alarm, ready to go yeah. uh, five or seven hours, right? Like I think that's probably sufficient for you. But if you were like, oh yeah, I, I need a nap at three o'clock and I'm just exhausted, mm -hmm. then you're probably not getting enough sleep. But Matthew Walker um, will tell you that, and he's he's got a PhD, he's really into the brain and preventing Alzheimer's and things like that, that um, not getting less than seven hours is insufficient for clearing up some of the metabolic debris in your brain that naturally builds up throughout the day. And so you have this whole sort of cleansing, sort of like a dishwasher process going on in your gliolymphatic system in the brain. So if we're shortchanging sleep, then over time we can build up metabolites that might predispose us to early onset neurodegenerative disorders. So just be mindful of that. Now that doesn't mean that if you have one night of just five hours that you're doomed. It just means, hey, maybe take a nap, try to, you can bank your sleep as well. So if you know that you're gonna be traveling hanging out with friends you haven't seen in two years and you're like, we're going to be parting it up. It's mm -hmm. like, okay, well maybe take an extra nap that day or mm -hmm. try to aim to get more sleep uh, ahead of time. So you can sleep bank. Yeah. That's helpful. You know, that made me think of, um, so last year I ran the Boston marathon. And so I had uh, a Garmin for really just like to know how far I was going. I wasn't using it for too much more, but, um, but HRV was something that I was told to track. And um, just because it's a, it's like a, my, the functional doctor at the time said, it's a, it's sort of a foolproof way to know how your body's doing because you can't cheat the heart rate. And, um, I found that very interesting. And since so many people wear wearables, um, as soon as the marathon was over with, I took that thing off. Like I don't, I, I, I learned enough to know that when I drink a little, I get like half the recovery. And I know that, um, I know that if I don't, then I generally recover to sort of like, I don't know, 80, 90%, a hundred sometimes, so I just kind of felt like I was doing fine, but, um, but I also in recent time have seen how people can, um, you know, with heart rate var variability track, um, also illnesses coming on, like it'll pick it up before you even feel it. And so like, I don't know, makeup, do you wear a wearable? I do. Yeah. I have a Garmin. I wear the watch and then I also mm -hmm. wear the aura ring at night. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Find conflicting information. A little bit. Yeah. It doesn't totally jive. You know, 
I just like the Garmin watch. I like to go out hiking and in the yeah. backcountry. So I, I do like, like it's, it's yeah. barometric pressure. There's all these yeah. other features to it. And then the steps are kind of nice, but the, the HR, I don't wear this when I'm sleeping um, uh-huh. because the, the aura ring, how they built it is it's a lower EMF device so that w- yeah. you know, when you're sleeping and all this, you don't have all these non-native frequencies right in your you know temple yeah. and all that. Um, so yeah, the aura ring is good because that will give you an average. And, and you're right. Like so many people will tell you, gosh, my HRV tanked. In fact, when I had COVID in December of 2020, I knew something was off. I didn't think it was COVID at the time because it was kind of quite mild, but my HRV totally tanked and um, my heart rate started to increase. So that was a a sign that, hey, something's sort of wrong here. Then I started to call friends that I was with and turns out they all had it, right? So anyway, um, I think it's a great thing to re- for people to, to be aware of for sure. Yeah. yeah. Okay, well, let's um, let's get into fitness because uh, again, I, I, there's, there's so much information out there that feels to me like it's very um, targeted and researched towards men. Mm-hmm. And I try really hard to find specific information to women. You, you do share some, especially because your wife is so fit and she, you know, practices fasting windows and exercises and those things. So I do hear you talk about that and I appreciate that. Um, but it's not the norm to, to really know a lot about women's hormones and exercising and fasting. And so, I mean, you can, I think we talked a little bit about, we talked a little bit about fasting, but is there some things specific to women that should be, we should pay attention to, um, and also getting more into sort of exercise. Um, we're talking about, I mean, I used to do CrossFit all the time. I mean, shoot, I used to do two a day workouts. I used to do all kinds of stuff. And so I wonder if part of that was some of the sort of like depletion of, of the body, but, um, but just, you know, the difference between walking and lifting and high intensity exercise, interval training versus steady state, you know, is there any difference with women that we should be doing that are different yeah. from men? It's an, it's an awesome question. You know, I do think that women should vary their intensity based upon where they are in their cycle and things like that. So, um, you know, during, during the luteal phase, maybe, maybe change it up, decrease the intensity a little bit. Um, you know, and listen to the body and not try to push things too, too intensely. But the biggest mistake that, that I've seen working with women since 2006 is um, overexercise and under eating. So I think it's really important for women to not rely upon cardio mm-hmm. as a primary mechanism to stay lean or burn fat. And instead, um, you know, um, use cardio as a, as sort of the appetizer, the last resort. So try to, um, you know, find out your calorie maintenance, look at your lean body mass. You can work with a coach or someone like that to figure out how many calories does Sally Smith need in a day to preserve lean muscle mass. So reframing it instead of, I got to burn fat to, okay, how can I maintain this muscle mass? And as a sort of side benefit of that, I will lose the fat. I think that's sort of the biggest framework shift that a lot of women um, from just a set of heuristics should refocus on because, again, it's all this sort of diet culture. You got to cut your calories. You got to eat iceberg lettuce and, and carrots and celery for lunch. Like, no, 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 you should be having red meat and steak and, you know, prioritizing protein to preserve the lean mass. Mm-hmm. And then as a, as a side benefit of that, you know, when you're at rest, you'll just burn more fat. So, that's what I would look at. Um, there's a friend of mine, Robert Sykes. He just wrote a book on ketogenic bodybuilding. And, you know, his whole, how he helps a lot of women actually is have them reverse diet. 
um, when they, a lot of women have, a lot of people in general, but more women than men, I would say, uh, have done chronic dieting, whether it's calorie cutting, this diet, fasting, whatever. But reverse dieting can actually help you uh, increase your metabolic rate and sort of overcome some of the adaptations that happen as a side effect of, of continuously dieting. So let's just say you and I both go on a diet, we lose 10 pounds. Our resting metabolic rate has decreased. So we're going to have to continue to con under consume food to just maintain that same sort of metabolic rate. And so you imagine doing this for 10, 15 years, off and on, off and on. Some people are still gaining weight if they're eating like 900 calories a day. So you're like, well, mm. how do you keep yeah. cutting calories from that standpoint? So, you know, reverse dieting or taking the weekends off and, and not being afraid of, you know, having say one gram of protein per pound of, of lean body mass, you know, and, and trying to, you know, actually start to eat food again. Um, I think that is problematic is under eating and over exercise. Well, what's the rhythm of the reverse dieting then being basically that you're in at least a maintenance or a surplus is what, is that what you're referring to when you say reverse dieting? Yeah. Yeah. So going maybe like a four week block of where, you know, you're, you're incre slowly increasing the calories to a maintenance phase. Uh, and that way you're increasing your metabolic rate slowly over time. And this isn't a massive sort of shift. And allowing you to sort of cut back on the cardio, because again, a lot of people are dependent upon cardio so that they mm -hmm. don't gain weight. Like I have to go run an hour a day or whatever, or else I'm going to get fat. Well, it's like, mm -hmm. well, what you could actually reverse diet and slowly increase your resting metabolic rate. Uh, and while scaling back some of that cardio to get to a maintenance phase. And replacing it with lifting to increase your lean muscle mass so that you burn more calories at rest. Exactly. And instead of, yeah, heavily relying upon the excessive cardio, then focus on, okay, I, I need to hit every major muscle group at least one day per week, whether that's mm -hmm. a three day split, a four day split, but yeah. focusing on getting some of taking some of that intensity and volume and, and transferring that to resistance training can be helpful. And what about because the like a whole month split, I'm thinking to myself, okay, if I was going to do that, where I actually don't do cardio, I just walk. Yeah. Um, I don't know yes. if that counts as cardio, but yeah. I, I walk. I don't really run. Other than after Boston last year, I was like bye bye running, and I'm I like I always enjoyed running. Um, but so I mean, I'm trying to think of a month that I would want to essentially gain weight and by eating more and you know, burning less calories and, and putting on muscle. I can't think of like a whole month where I'm like, Oh, I don't have anything to do where I'm not going to be on camera or not going to be doing something. Is that the only way, or can you do more of a micro sort of, um, split where it's like five on two off, like, you, you know, your weekends are more calorically dense. And then during the week, I mean, is that gonna, is that, is that an option to be able to totally keep the metabolism up? totally an option. Yeah. People, um, there's many studies on this. They call it like a five, two sort of diet plan where yeah, really clean, maybe in a slight deficit Monday yeah. through Friday yeah. and Saturday and Sunday, you're having family over, you're going yeah. out with your friends. You can be, a now it doesn't mean you have candy bars every hour, but it means that you, you're a little bit loose. It's more, a little bit higher calorie days. And, and so anyway, the point here is a little bit of undulation or variability. Okay. If we're too strict for too long, dieting and cardio and high volume CrossFit or whatever. It's just a recipe to burn yourself out and actually cause loss of muscle mass and yeah. slow down your metabolic rate, which ultimately doesn't help you because, you know, you naturally lose muscle as you age. It's harder to put it on.
Totally. And, 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 you know, I, I'm thinking of just, you know, I'm, I just turned 40 and, you know, I've got friends that are that age or older and, you know, there's some that are like, if I eat more than like once or twice a day, like I just gain weight and I just can't even fathom it. I'm like, I will, I just, I'm, I just don't, I just can't do it. I won't do it. I don't believe that's the way my body should work. I believe I should be able to eat three to four times a day within a sort of eight to 12 hour window. And I should be fine. Like that should not be too much. And, um, so if that's what someone's doing, because that's all that will work for them, or like, even maybe say, maybe there's just people out there that are just crushing Adderall and, you know, like not eating all day. I don't know. Um, but you know, what are the repercussions of that? And then what's the, what's the comeback from that? Because if that's all that they can do that, I don't know if that's really sustainable. So what does that look like to come back from that kind of, um, treatment to your body for an extended period of time? Yeah. Well, again, it's more psychological in the sense that there's resistance to actually start to eat more calories. Uh, people think that they're going to gain a lot more weight than they actually do. And so, yeah, you might initially retain some water, the scale might fluctuate, but your body composition, especially if you're exercising, shouldn't change so much. So maybe let's just say, you know, if someone were to track what they were, this is a great way, just like a dietary recall, you know, you mentioned that person who like, oh my gosh, if I eat more than 900 calories, I gain fat. Okay, well, make sure that that's what you're really consuming, 900 calories. Then let's start to crank it up and maybe you you bump it up to 250 or 500 calories a day, you know, Monday through Friday. Um, and just kind of see how that goes while you're still exercising. But, you know, some people might notice, hey, I can actually, I feel better. I move more, you know, my muscles feel just more energy, more mental clarity. I don't feel that fatigue and I actually didn't gain the fat that I thought I would. Um, so I think that's, that's really an important, you know, aspect because here, here's what, what happens. Your, your, our metabolic rate is constantly, it's really influenced by and adapting to how much energy we're consuming. So if we continue to diet down, in fact, there was this biggest loser, remember that TV show, biggest mm -hmm. loser, they did a follow-up study of these people. And so they lost a lot of weight very quickly through a combination of high volume exercise and excessive calorie restriction. Well, it turns out that their resting metabolic rate was suppressed for over seven years, even though a lot of them continued to gain weight after, after the biggest loser. So check it out. Yeah, their RMRs lower, yet they've regained like about 50% of the weight that they lost. So they're, you know, basically they're in the red, which is not good metabolically speaking. Yeah. So and the point is we shouldn't have to rely upon super high volume exercise and excessive calorie restriction. We should be able to cons mm -hmm. you know, not starve ourselves, mm -hmm. focus on resistance training and get to a place where we're like you, Danica, we're, you know, we're walking like, mm -hmm. Hey, look, we're taking a leisurely yeah. walk. We enjoy it. The dogs like it. It's good for the family. What have you? Yeah. Okay. Um, before I, before we get into some hit lists at the end, I want to, um, ask about, uh, just certain testing that may be recommended for people. Um, short story. I, um, had my breast implants removed three weeks ago, um, for years, no matter what I did, it didn't change my body at all. I kept gaining weight, all kinds of other side effects. And I remember having a suspicion years ago in like 2018, like four years ago that maybe my hormones are off. So, I'm just telling that quick short story to say that what kind of testing should we do? Because there are just 
there are just things that can hold us back from the goals that we have. And what I found myself in was this impossible paradigm of I'm gaining weight, but if I eat less and work out more, I'm now stressing my body and it's continuing to go into hibernation and not work properly. And nothing is really working. But if I don't do the working out and the eating, and then I just keep gaining, it's just, I felt, I found myself in this horrible situation. And so I think that this can happen. It can strike at, at different ages. I mean, I discovered that every like thyroid was low hypoglycemia, all my hormones were low, heavy metal toxicity, so many different things. And so it was an enlightening year. Um, but it explained why someone who's, you know, I'm by no means you, but, uh, but I, I mean, I wrote a book talking about, you know, how to work out and how it works and, you know, work for me and certain diets and ways to eat. And I couldn't make it happen for myself anymore. And so, uh, what would you recommend for people to do test wise to check their bodies so that they don't find themselves hitting their head against a wall of a problem that they can't get beyond because there are mechanisms that do hold us back from these goals? Totally. It's a phenomenal question. Um, the basic labs that I recommend, and this would pick it up to potentially with, with, in your situation, the liver enzymes. So let's just back up. So when you go to your doctor and just get a standard test, um, not to promote my website, but I have a cheat sheet on my website, highintensityhealth.com. If you want to check it out, uh, it's a comprehensive metabolic panel called a chem 24 and CBC. So CBC stands for a complete blood count, very basic stuff, but there's a few tests on there that for whatever reason, some big primary care, you know, Kaiser's and this and that they ignore, but you should make sure to request them. So there's three liver tests, the GGT, AST, ALT, Usually for whatever reason, most labs and doctors just run AST, and, but you need all three. Hmm. So in your case, if there is environmental toxins or leakage from breast implants or what have you, occupational exposure to lead or arsenic or whatever, the GGT and ALT, again, these are part of the liver function test enzymes, they start to increase above 30. Not in everyone, but in some people. So that could be an indicator of, okay, well, look, I've done the calorie restriction and the exercise. Something's not really working here. Could it be persistent organic pollutants? Could it be the endocrine disrupting chemicals? Could it be fatty liver from, you know, hyper uh, palatable junk food, all of that? Uh, that's really important. The hemoglobin A1C, glucose and triglycerides. And I like to help people and, you know, train them. Like when you're thinking about lab tests, don't just look at one marker, look at this in a cluster. So mm -hmm. what are the triglycerides? What do those look like? And so for some people in the situation that you mentioned, metabolically inflexible, can't burn the fat. Oftentimes the triglycerides start to increase. They're over a hundred usually. And that is also linked with an elevation and sort of a a constellation that appears to be pre-diabetic. So hemoglobin A1C, glucose, triglycerides tend to pair together. Mm. So those are things that I would look at and also look at insulin to see. So most doctors don't think to run insulin, but it should be run and it should never be elevated in a fasted state because insulin shouldn't be elevated when you're fasting. It's it's a post-meal hormone. Um, so that's those are just, again, like five or six things that we mentioned. Yeah, Common, you can get them at any commercial lab or major hospital in the U.S., most oftentimes they're ignored or not looked at. And then you can go down the chain further and, and look at other, you know, sort of metabolic tests, LDL, uh, uh, LDH. There's a few things, but you know, just 
off the cuff, just thinking about without having to get into boutique labs from say Genova or Metametrics or these mm -hmm. companies, um, those are pretty helpful and can give you an indicator yeah. uh, about what's going on. Sure. And, yeah. and to go deeper. Totally. Right. Cause it's like phase one is do these things check out now? Phase two is, you know, let's get into the boutique labs and let's go, let's go deeper. How often would you recommend that people do that? And what age yeah, should they start at? I think in people's thirties so that they have a good baseline, yeah. you know, got to know what good is. Totally. Yeah. I mean, I was just fortunate enough that I started when I was in my twenties because I had mentors that told me to do this, but then you can sort of see changes, right? Like if you oh. see, for example, you have your albumin, if that suddenly changed, that's sort of a, a red flag that there could be some sort of tumor processes going on or uh, maybe a pre-cancer situation. So anyway, it's good to have these things. You don't need to, some people test every month way too much. Mm -hmm. I mean, unless you're actively, you know, figuring out some complex, you know, sure. you just had a heart attack, for example. Sure. Um, but I think once a year, every 18 months, it's a good idea. Okay. That's good. All right. What are some top supplements? Uh, first off, maybe I'll ask, do you think that it's possible that we can get everything that we need from our diet or are we in a state now where based on soils, um, food manufacturing and sourcing that we actually can't achieve the, um, uh, the, the level of, um, vitamins and nutrients that we need for ultimate health. Uh, can we get it through food or should, and then if not, then what supplements are the most important and maybe just the most important supplements anyway, because you probably have to be pretty determined to get all your nutrients in if you wanted to do it through food. Yeah. You know, I think there's probably like 2% of the population who have like a, a, you know, homestead with cows and chickens, and, you know, grass fed, you know, <laughs> I'm so and, jealous. And, yeah. Biodynamic farming. Like if that's you, then probably you don't need to spend any money on supplements. Um, but uh, you know, most people can benefit from taking vitamin D, especially believe it or not, even in Arizona, there was one study in Tucson, Arizona, it's really sunny, as many people know, in Tucson. And uh, it, this was uh, college kids, and this was like from 2007, were surveyed and, and analyzed and looked look at their labs. They had insufficient vitamin D because uh, we're taught now um, that the sun is bad, that's going to cause skin cancer, that it's really, you got to cover up. And so people are outside, but they're covering up their skin and they're wearing sunscreen. So most people deficient in vitamin D. Uh, an easy one that's affordable is iodine. Iodine is very important. If you don't have a water filter or a drink filtered water, you're getting probably chlorine and fluoride in your water, both of which antagonize iodine. As you know, iodine, very important for the thyroid, but mm -hmm. uh, women concentrate iodine in their breast tissue and in the uterus. So there's really good data showing it's helpful. For new moms, iodine is, they must consider this because iodine deficiency is linked with suboptimal IQ in developing babies. So iodine, and it's so cheap. I don't even is know why. There's little a, drops. Yeah. You know, it's on Amazon. You can find it anywhere. Recommended Potassium. dose is. Um, so it's in usually micrograms. So like yeah. one drop would be 150 micrograms. I want to say the RDA is maybe 400 micrograms, which is okay. far too low. Mm -hmm. Most people that, uh, in Japan and other parts of the world that eat seafood would get like two to three to up to 12 milligrams. So you can be pretty liberal with the dosaging. Um, okay. Yeah. So, I, I, you know, in our household, we have some droppers, you know, we'll take like a, a milligram, one to two milligrams every day. So, okay. um, but yeah, iodine is a big one. Let's see what else. Um, I'm a huge fan of magnesium mm -hmm. for obvious reasons. Uh, it's a 
participant in over 350 enzymatic reactions in the body. So magnesium is really helpful. You want to look for glycinate or malate or threonate. Those are the forms that are going to be best absorbed. Um, again, these are all affordable. Most people can afford everything that we talked about. Um, now, for women that have issues with PCOS or sleep, stress issues, L-theanine and inositol can be helpful um, before bed in the evening. So those are things to consider more specialty mm-hmm. sort of micronutrients, but not, not egregious or not super outrageous in terms of price. Um, gosh, what else? I mean, I'm biased. I created an electrolyte. That's really, really cool. Uh, we have real salt and all these things. So electrolyte can be helpful. And, and also I should say creatine for women, very helpful. In fact, most really? of research has been on creatine for men, mm. but women don't store as much creatine as men. It can really help huh. them from the cognition just asking my doctor about this. I was like, should I take creatine? And I think yeah. the idea with, from, from a female perspective, if I'm going to speak for the collective is that you're going to have water retention. You're going to like, it's going to bloat you. Um, but that's not true. So yeah, here's the thing, Danica, you know, all the creatine stuff, you know, the, the perception of a bloating, a water retention, all that, that was from, you know, bad actors in the late nineties that sold creatine with four parts dextrose to one part creatine. So let's say you take five grams of creatine, mm-hmm. you would be taking 20 plus grams, sometimes 40 grams of sh- pure sugar. So then people would retain water. They'd have kidney issues like, whoa, man, why is this creatine? Cut? No, it wasn't the creatine. It was the refined sugar that was paired with it because there was this perception that you had to have sugar in order to make creatine more effective. But new research actually shows that electrolytes like salt, calcium, potassium, yeah. magnesium help make creatine function better and help with, because creatine okay. is also involved in in osmolysis and, and functioning of, of hydration. But- it really functions when you're exercising. It helps the cell uh, with energy production. So that's how it works. It's not anabolic. Uh, people think, oh, creatine, I'm going to get facial hair if I'm a woman. No, no, it, it does not impact testosterone or any of the androgens. It's solely functioning uh, on the, at the cellular level at hi- hydration and also helping with exercise uh, energy production. So, mm-hmm. yeah, that's a big one, especially for women who have been vegan or vegetarian or don't eat red meat they stand to benefit the most from supplementing with creatine. Yeah. And you take that right before you work out. Is that a pre-workout or is it a morning thing? Yeah. I mean, anytime you remember, but researchers have looked at pre-workout and intra-workout, like during the workout, you could just Mm -hmm. sip on it. I wasn't going to ask this. I was going to try and wrap it up, but I I feel like you mentioned it. um, And it made me, it was something I was thinking about today. Vegans and vegetarians. Is it possible to sustain that and be healthy, healthy and get everything that you need uh, with that diet? Because I feel like that's one of those that, man, people might try it for a little bit. They might feel okay for a second, but I mean, I don't, I don't think there's anyone I've ever met that hasn't said, yeah, I, I, I got, I was the worst. I, I was the least, least healthy I'd ever been. Things like that. Is this just like, cause it's a, it's a thing like vegan restaurants thing. and, you know, I don't know, call the shows that come out propaganda. I don't know. Maybe they're, maybe they are, maybe they're not, but it's very popular. It is. Yeah. I mean, everywhere you go, it's plant-based. I tried powered by plants. Oh man. I tried. I was like, uh, I mean, and I, I date, then I kind of migrated towards fish and now I eat it all because I truly feel the best with high fat animal meat. Yeah. Me, me as well. And so I've dabbled and experimented with all this, you know, we have a lot of 
like 400 square feet of gardening space. And so for the month of July and August, you know, we, every year we try to eat as many vegetables as we can. And I was just honest with myself. I'm like, you know what? I have a lot of gastrointestinal distress. I feel bloated. Yeah. Uh, I feel like I just look sort of emaciated in the face. I'm not as strong. Mm-hmm. So I just, I'm like, you know what? And this is just my end of one. I'm sure there are some people who um, do well on it. But what I found, generally speaking, is most people gravitate after they've been vegan or vegetarian to having more fish and having red meat because they're either anemic, they're deficient you know, in iron and as a consequence, they're anemic or they have other B vitamin uh, insufficiencies because of say the cofactors, uh, all the, like we talked about creatine, you're not going to find creatine in plants. You're not going to find other carnonutrients like carnosine, like taurine. Taurine is highly concentrated in the heart. It does a lot of great things. It's a natural electrolyte as well. You're not going to find much zinc in plants. Uh, you're not going to find thiamine or uh, B12. So there are choline. There are so many yeah. micronutrients um, that you're not going to find in plants. So I think people, again, we need to be really honest about why are we being plant-based? Because again, we're hearing messaging from the powers that be that eating meat's not sustainable. Eating meat rots your colon. Eating meat creates heart disease. I mean, there's all these things. You're, You're destroying the planet if you consume animal products. But there's a big difference in the quality and the amount of environmental destruction of say, you know, uh, conventionally agricultural raised industrial agriculture, pork versus say, uh, you know, grass fed free range pasture beef, right? So total different where you have a cat, an animal living in its native environment, eating food that it should be eating and then regenerating the agriculture versus something that's on a commercial feedlot that's creating tons of sewage and waste and antibiotics, right? So we need to sort of disentangle and, and be a little bit more nuanced about the types of foods that we're eating and, and so on. And likewise, when it comes to a plant-based diet, a lot of people, you know, have plant-based junk food, right? It's like, oh, it's plant-based. It's just soy protein, canola oil, and sugar. Yeah, that's derived from plants, but that is not nourishing your body. Mm-hmm. That is creating inflammation. You can look at any of the animal, any of the studies that have been done, uh, looking at creating metabolic endotoxemia and gut dysbiosis and altering the gut biome, you know, right? Uh, you can have vegan junk food and it's going to do that. Um, so again, most people, when they go plant-based, they're not eating you know, organic vegetables. It's plant-based junk food. Mm-hmm. So not good. But to answer your question specifically, could you do it? If you were on a Hawaiian island growing your own stuff, right? You had all sorts of mangoes, papayas, avocados, coconuts, and maybe you had some fish periodically, you could probably pull it off. But most people are not doing that. Mm-hmm. So I think we just need to be a little bit honest with ourselves. And yeah. um, and I don't think there's anything wrong with having red meat and fish supplementing a plant-based diet with that periodically because you're getting nutrients that you wouldn't be getting from plants. Yeah. All right. There's so many other questions, but I know we probably need to wrap it up. So, okay. Based on, I was asking Jen, my producer just from like, what's a good question. And so I think this is a question that honestly applies to like everybody, but maybe especially girls. Um, okay. So if you had sort of like a very short amount of time and something that you were preparing for, and honestly, maybe this fits in really well with kind of cycling and having those ebbs and flows of diet of caloric restriction, but then, um, then somewhat of a surplus or maintenance calorie amount. So what can you do if you have just a couple of weeks before an event or a trip? What can you do to lean out before before that? I would recommend either alternate day fasting or alternate day 
OMAD, which is one meal a day. Mm -hmm. So that would be an easy way. And again, I like the alternating Mm -hmm. because you're not chronically suppressing. Because Mm. when we chronically cut calories, even for three weeks, we get this metabolic adaptation, slowing of the metabolic rate. So you have a wedding coming up. You're like, okay, how how do I like, what do I do? You could eat your normal diet Monday. Tuesday, you're having just one meal. Let's say it's lunch. And maybe it's it's less ca- less overall calories. Maybe you cut your calories by five hundred or you know seven hundred and fifty, right? Then you could eat normal on Wednesday, back to the one meal a day or or really low calorie on Thursday, and so on. So that's what I would suggest. But on those days where you're eating normally, I would really try to exercise and focus on weightlifting, not cardio. Oh. So trying to hit those muscles, yeah, because that's actually mm-hmm. going to help prevent the sort of metabolic adaptation, slowing of the metabolic rate, and it will help you burn fat and look more fit. I mean, here's the thing. Even if you look at natural bodybuilders who go, they, they, they're skinny. They have, they have no muscle because they, they diet down. Um, you don't have to lose as much fat to look good if you have muscle underneath. And so hmm. that's the thing that I would focus on. Um, of course, you could bake in cardio into that, but I would do more intervals. So instead of hopping on the elliptical, I would say hit the ski erg, hit the concept row, focus on power, like, you know, try to row 200 meters in under a minute or something like really try to go intense for 45 seconds or 60 seconds and then take a break and come back to it. That's what I would focus on. Mm. But I do like the alternate day. Like, you know, I'll I'll periodically do that if I'm going to go on to Hawaii. We went to Hawaii in March. I was like, okay. So um, every other day I was doing a really low calorie day, but I wasn't. It wasn't consistently low. And so I never like got that permanent sort of uh, suppression in my metabolic rate. Got it. What about like a, what about the macro balance of it? Is there anything you do with that? Yeah. I mean, I would cut out all the refined stuff or only have that on like one day a week. So no ice cream, no cookies, no bread, no pasta. And I would have my carbs early in the day. So before early. noon. Early. Okay. All right. So you could have it say before you train. So that could be either right before within a few hours of exercise or after, and then have, then just keep it protein and fat. And that for most people, yeah, you're going to see the, the, the biggest thing, how, you know, if you're making progress is how do your pants feel? That's the first thing that should change is around the, the waistline. Um, and so that should start to change. And what's cool about what we just talked about is you could probably sustain that too if you wanted to, like as a strategy long-term and not have a lot of weight regain, you know? Whereas what people would normally do is say, oh my gosh, I got this wedding coming up. I'm gonna have iceberg lettuce and celery and just do a bunch of cardio. Every day. Then you're gonna gain a bunch of weight once that ends and that's not good. Amazing, thank you so much. You're just such a wealth sure. of information. I will have, we're gonna have to do this again because I think I probably have like 15 more questions. <laughs> yeah, anytime, happy to do so. Thank you so much. Thanks everybody for listening to the Pretty Intense Podcast today. I hope you enjoyed it. If you like what you heard today and you wanna hear more, please click on the subscribe button.